This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. They called it a soldier's battle because it spun out of control of the Army commanders. The Battle of Chickamauga, September 19 and 20, 1863, was one of the most confused and confusing major actions of the war. No one who was there had a clear picture of what was happening in every part of the field, and until now, neither has anyone else. But that changed with the recent publication of The Maps of Chickamauga by author David A. Powell and cartographer David A. Friedrichs. We'll look into this fascinating battle with David Powell today on Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Total career success. What does it mean to you? World Talk Radio presents a radio program dedicated to help you achieve your career goal. Even in times of economic uncertainty, you can achieve your financial goals. Whether you're a college grad, new in the working environment, or a top-level executive, you will benefit from the practical and proven advice on job search and career advancement. Join Ken and Cheryl Dawson every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, for Total Career Success on World Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a cloudy June day in 2010. It's our second-to-last show for this uh, year. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, talking with Tom Clemens about the 1862 campaign in the East and then taking our summer hiatus, uh, looking for new guests, lining them up for next year, and getting ready for a new season of Civil War Talk Radio, which, of course, uh, is the opinion and content solely of me and the guests on the show, not that of East Carolina University or any other institution. have to get the legal words in there, as we always do. Uh, if you're uh, desperate for more Civil War uh, chat and you're in the North Carolina area, I will be speaking next week, Tuesday, June 8th, at the uh, Sons of Confederate Veterans meeting in Kinston, North Carolina. I have been assured by the people who invited me that this is one of the uh, Civil War-oriented SCV chapters. They have people who come to actually talk about history and discuss the past, not one of the uh, libertarian uh, revanchist lost cause slash nutcase SCV uh, chapters, of which apparently there has been a schism into those two branches. And I'm always happy to talk to the former, not so much to the latter. No point in uh, spending time uh, with people who already know what they think. I will also be at the Society of Civil War Historians meeting in Richmond 
the following week. Uh, no show on June 18th because I'll be on the road. And if you happen to be in the area uh, or if you're attending the convention, please uh, say hello. In the meantime, uh, please send me suggestions uh, for people you'd like to hear on the show next season. The convention of Civil War historians is, is the place where I go to uh, line up guests for the following season. Uh, there will be a lot of interesting people there, a lot of new books on display, and a chance to uh, see who's doing what in the field. So uh, please send uh, to my email here at ecu.edu. Uh, uh, the email address is prokopovichg, last name, first initial, at ecu.edu. And I'd be happy to hear who you'd like to hear from in the season ahead on Civil War Talk Radio. And also, as I do every week, invite you to contribute to the book fund, uh, which I was put to brilliant use in, in getting this week's book, The Maps of Chickamauga. Uh, if you would care to contribute something to Civil War Talk Radio to help with the purchase of books we discuss on the show, or anything else, it's not a tax-deductible contribution, uh, you can do so through PayPal, for which you don't actually need a PayPal account. People are scared off by that thought that PayPal is something mysterious. If you just go to paypal.com, put in uh, the destination address, uh, the place you want to send uh, funds is civilwartr at aol.com, uh, and it will tell you how to do it using credit card or any other modern form of of currency, uh, you'll be able to send a donation there. And if you send, uh, I believe, uh, $15, I'll be happy to send you a copy of All for the Regiment or a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves? Send $25, I'll send both books and sign them and or cross my name out if you prefer, whatever you want, and uh, you can get, get those to add to your collection. Uh, and again, send uh, send your suggestions for for next year's shows. Uh, among other guests lined up already is uh, Peter Carmichael, who is the new director of the Civil War Institute at uh, Gettysburg College. Uh, Peter has been on the show before and uh, is working on some new interesting things, but will also talk to us about what's going on there. He he and I were discussing uh, the show. Uh, this, he says, is his first administrative position uh, directing the CWI, and uh, I've recently been appointed the full-time chair of the history department here at ECU on a 12-month basis, so summer vacations, that academic uh, goal that we all strive for, are, are, are no longer quite there. So we're thinking uh, that we'll spend our entire show on October 15th complaining about administrative duties for the entire 55 minutes. Um, if that's something you'd be interested in hearing, uh, send the email. Let us know you'd, you'd like to hear administrators complain about their work. If you'd rather we talked about the Civil War, of course, we could do that as well. I'm also hoping uh, to get uh, Bob Kirby, the new superintendent at Gettysburg, lined up. Uh, I've been working with his staff for some weeks trying to find an open slot in his schedule, and we can talk with him on a Friday. Uh, I hope this works. I tried for, for some time to get his predecessor, John Latcher, on the show. Uh, we never quite got that organized in terms of finding free time. Apparently, he was busy with his computer, if you know what I mean. And uh, I certainly hope that's not the case with the new superintendent, uh, both of whom uh, did great things and are doing great things for the battlefield. I want to stress that, and I look forward to uh, 
talking with the new superintendent. But today's guest, I'm also looking forward to talking to, somebody who was on the show five years ago and now has a new book of great interest. Uh, our guest today is David A. Powell, and the book is The Maps of Chickamauga. Uh, Dave, are you there? I am, in, I am here. Wonderful. Uh, good to hear from you again. Uh, the, the five years have flown by since we last got to chat here. Um, yeah, and I'm, I get, I'm impressed I get a, with the, the the quality and the and the duration of of the show. It, it amazes me. It, it was started as a fill-in in 2004. I was asked, "Could you do this week's show?" And I said, "Sure." And then I did the next week's show, and now it's been uh, we're six years into it. And what amazes me uh, is, is that there's always there are so many interesting people in our field, uh, people who who write books that I continue to uh, to enjoy reading and, and telling people about, and yours is certainly one of them. You've spent the last five years at least working on this book, uh, according to the introduction, uh, even longer than that. Uh, talk a, a bit about how you how this came about. Um, I tell people that uh, when they ask me how long it took to write, I say, well, it took about a year to write, but the other answer is it took about uh, 13 years to do. Uh, I originally... Uh, started this, oh, I don't know, back in 98, probably, uh, I decided to seriously approach uh, a project of doing something on the Battle of Chickamauga. There had been a map study or two uh, of something similar published about Gettysburg, and and I, my own particular interest had gravitated towards Chickamauga, and I thought, why not do a similar project for that? And foolishly then, I, I said to myself that, well, it should take about a year to do and uh, it turned out I was right. I just omitted the, the 12 years of research leading up to it. <laughs> that, that's um, off, often the case. I, I got myself into it, and uh, uh, as I got into it, I realized I simply didn't know enough about the battle to do what I wanted to do, which was to essentially track uh, each regiment on the battlefield in 15-minute intervals. The book doesn't quite do that. There's some space limitations for for that many maps. But uh, as you page through it, you'll find that in many cases it's very close. That's exactly what we do. Uh, certainly when the action intensifies, we try and uh, uh, just detail it, break it down, so that uh, anybody with a, an interest in a specific regiment could literally follow their regiment across the battlefield. And, and, and by the same token, people with an interest in the the larger scope of the action, who's fighting who at any given moment, you know, what's happening on the north end of the field and at the south end of the field uh, simultaneously, the, the book will also help answer those questions. Well, it, it does that. It has, it is, uh, as it says in the subtitle, Battlefield Atlas, there are, it looks like about 250 maps, uh, each with a full page of text describing what's happening. And, uh, uh, it does allow you to follow very clearly what's going on. Uh, but you said something interesting about not realizing you didn't know enough about the battle. Now, the first time you were on the show, we talked about simulation games, uh, a, a way of studying the past that uh, has fascinated me for many years. I started playing uh, war games on paper in the 70s. And I remember at one point, somewhere in graduate school, thinking, you know, I'm not getting as much out of these games as I used to because I think I know more about the subject than this particular game designer did. So I'm not learning anything anymore. 
and uh, it, it, you've designed a number of games, but yeah. as you were doing this Chickamauga project, at some point you realized, I need to know a lot more. I realized that um, uh, sometimes the uh, the traditional narrative that I was relying on, the, the secondary sources uh, that I was working with, often didn't match up. Um, a particular narrative would, would fall apart in a key area, and I wouldn't discover that until I started to, say, lay out the units and measure the unit frontages and then realize that, oh, a, a specific description uh, of, a, of an action wasn't, uh, wasn't correct with the information I had. So I wanted to go to the primary sources and see what they said. Uh, and that's really where, and to be honest, I probably went head over heels into it too. I just uh, discovered that I really like archival work, <laughs> and I love to track down obscure references and, and uh, material of that sort. So uh, I, there's a bit of overkill. Even in the book, uh, the bibliography is is well uh, uh, biased towards primary sources and unpublished primary sources. There's an awful lot in there. And also, there's there's many many more sources that I didn't use for primarily for space limitations. Uh, so uh, to a certain extent, there, there there's just an amount of of overkill. But um, the uh, the need for me anyway to um, uh, to track those regiments uh, comes out of an outgrowth of the war game too. Um, or before I did this book, I did a, a, a game project, and we talked a little bit about our various uh, gaming interests way back when. And uh, the game project motivated me to look at the, the a more detailed analysis of the battle. Uh, of course, now I want to go back and redo the game, and, and uh, I'm still proud of the game. I think it, it does <laughs> what it's supposed to do. But like any author, I think you notice the little stuff the most, and the stuff you'd change is usually fairly minor, but I want to change it all now. <laughs> well, that, that's, that is often the case. Just uh, for any listeners who are curious, what's the name of the game? The, the game on the Battle of Chickamauga is called yeah. This Terrible Sound, and it was published in 1993, I believe, if I haven't got my publication dates mixed up, by a company I was then affiliated with called The Gamers. Now the gamers are part of a company called MMP, Multiman Publications. Uh, and the game, uh, there are still some copies floating around out there, certainly on the secondary market. Uh, and we're talking a little bit about redoing some of those older games and bringing them up to code, so to speak. Well, that, that one of the things about designing a game as opposed to writing historical manuscript uh, and, and and this is where I think games actually have an advantage as historical tools, is they do force you to to, to come to grips with, with shortcomings in your sources. That if you're writing about a battle, you can say, well, this brigade was sort of around here at this sort of this time. But if you're going to design a game and have a regiment arrive on the battlefield, you have to tell the player it arrives at this place at this time, and you have to make that as accurate as you can. So, So you really have to resolve that and that's where you get the the situation you encountered where two sources will tell you two different things and uh the the writer can just sort of fudge it and leave it uh vague but the game designer has to say this specific hexagon is where they arrive 
Uh, yeah, the, uh, the the game designer has to uh, to make a decision, uh, whereas the writer, if he doesn't have the material, can sort of uh, fudge it or, or minimize it. Uh, the thing that's interesting about the Atlas is that in many ways the Atlas is exactly the same as a game uh, in that uh, you have the order of battle, you lay out the uh, the units in your sector that you're studying, you start to draw them into the maps, uh, and you realize, for instance, that you don't really know what the 7th Texas, for example, is doing, and you don't have any good sources on the 7th Texas. Uh, well, it's the exact same situation. If you just leave it off or say, you know, put a little a little circle, a little thought balloon off to the side of the map and say, we, we don't know where the 7th Texas is, mm-hmm. uh, people will notice. Uh, you know, the, the uh, I guess, an omission in a, in a narrative text describing a battle, you, you can say, well, they were with the brigade. But on a map or on a game board, uh, the question is more immediate. You have to come up with some sort of answer, and that's that's one of the, the things, one of the reasons why I was propelled so strongly into trying to track down as much primary source material as I could to try and answer some of those questions. And there was one part, in one of the early maps, uh, where where you have a, a cavalry unit that just says unknown. Uh, uh, yes. uh, 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 defending a, a part of Bragg's line during the Tullahoma campaign, and it's hardly a critical piece of information. No one's going to lose sleep over it, um, but it does stand out. It makes it, it sort of triggers, at least for me, the realization. Well, you know, here's one where you just could not, you know, identify which unit happened to be there at that moment, uh, but it's clear from other sources somebody was there. So, so you can't just leave a blank on the map. Uh, you put the, the the mark down here on, on the map uh, showing there was a Confederate cavalry unit at Bradleyville on this particular day. Um, yeah, absolutely. You have, uh, uh, you know, and you can thank uh, Major General Wheeler for that, by the way. That uh, you were unable to find out. Yeah, Confederate cavalry records are, are quite bad. <laughs> uh, reports are almost non-existent. Uh, far, they're, they're some of the worst on either side, north or south. Uh, and and so, uh, yeah, I'm. I uh, I had some interesting information. The uh, the Federals talking about that campaign mentioned fighting a cavalry unit. Um, the Confederate infantry mentioned that their cavalry pickets were were driven in, and the the regiment was kind of pushed around. But um, the no one in any of the sources I have bothered to mention or identify the Confederate cavalry unit in question. So. In the end, not all questions get answered, but as many as can be, I hope. What do you do? I mean, this is what historians do all the time. I'm curious what, what your approach is uh, when you encounter the situation that you described earlier where uh, the secondary source is unclear or conflicts with another one. You go back to primary sources. But the primary sources, the people who were there, uh, they conflict also. One one person's letter home says we attacked. Uh, in the morning, another person's journal says uh, we attacked in the afternoon. A third person's memoir says we didn't attack at all. Uh, what did you do when you encountered that kind of situation? I look for uh, a sort of a congruence of sources. For In that specific uh, sort of uh, example, for instance, I would say, well, I have two sources that said they attacked and one source that said they didn't attack. I suspect they attacked. Now all I've got to do is resolve the time question. 
uh, in time questions are easier to uh, uh, to resolve than than uh, positional questions because uh, everybody's time is wrong. I, I I tell people when they ask me about the the timeline in the book, um, you know, the even in the, within the Union Army, for instance, General Thomas's uh, times uh, that he gives in his reports and some of his subordinates' reports are going to be uh, uh, on average about two hours uh, different from General Rosecrans' reports of the same incident. Uh, and these are the reports found in the OR. So there's a consistent uh, time problem between t- uh, you know, the Corps commander of the 14th Corps and the Army commander, who are often only you know, a mile or a mile and a half apart. Uh, but their headquarters aren't, aren't synced up in terms of time. So, it's, so people thought about time differently, too. Uh, we have to think about time more precisely. In fact, it's time to take a break at this moment. So we're going to do that. And we'll come right back on Civil War Talk Radio with Dave Powell. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The Battle of Chickamauga was as confusing a major battle as took place in the entire Civil War. We'll see if we can untangle some of its threads when we return with Dave Powell on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back. To Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with David A. Powell. He's the author of The Maps of Chickamauga, an Atlas of the Chickamauga Campaign, including the Tullahoma Operations, June 22 to September 23, 1863. It's an atlas with maps drawn by David A. Friedrichs, or perhaps computer-generated is a better term. Uh, a really marvelous book for understanding what happened Uh, at Chickamauga in this dramatic uh, and very confusing two-day battle in 1863. Uh, Dave, it seems to me, whereas you, I'm sure, envision uh, the maps of Chickamauga in your sleep, and many of our listeners know know the the battle and the situation well, uh, it might be a good practice to outline a little bit of, of the strategic background and, and, and talk about the battle itself. How did What was happening in the summer of 1863? Well, everyone I'm sure is familiar with uh, the Union victory at Gettysburg and, and Vicksburg, twin victories on July 4th. Um, 
the one front for the uh, for the Union that was quiet actually was Middle Tennessee, the, the Union Army outside of Nashville, uh, and President Lincoln being President Lincoln, was eager to see that army also move forward. The, uh, the, the Union commander, General Rosecrans, uh, was a, a very meticulous planner and, uh, and, and full of, uh, wanted to have everything precisely right before he uh, began operations. And so uh, his, uh, his campaign, to, uh, the first campaign that, that this book talks about, the Tullahoma operation really kicks off at the end of June and uh, runs only a couple of weeks until uh, the beginning of July, and it doesn't result in a major battle. That's because the Confederate opponent, General Braxton Bragg, and his army of Tennessee are too small, really. Uh, they're, in terms of infantry and artillery, they're only half the size of Rosecrans' army. Uh, Bragg has... 45,000 troops, but 15,000 of those are cavalry, so he really only has 30,000 infantry and artillery. General Rosecrans has 55,000 infantry and artillery plus cavalry and and some garrison troops. So uh, Rosecrans has really overwhelming numbers. The result is the Confederates abandoned Middle Tennessee at the beginning of July without a major battle. Uh, Rosecrans and and the Federal Army of the Cumberland are pretty happy about this, but uh, Rosecrans is also frustrated. He feels that Washington overlooks him. Uh, the President Lincoln and, and Secretary of War Edward Stanton overlook him because, as he puts it in one telegram, uh, his victory is not written in letters of blood. In other words, didn't have a major uh, confrontation, huge casualty list. Rosecrans' ne- next objective is the the gateway city of Chattanooga. Chattanooga sits on the Tennessee River at the very southwest cor- or southeast corner. I'm sorry of Tennessee. Uh, there's a gap through the mountain ranges there. Uh, railroads converge there. The only east-west uh, Virginia Tennessee link uh, converges at Chattanooga. There's a uh, it's a Essentially, it's the way to go if you're going to transit the mountains and enter the Confederate heartland, if you're going to go to Georgia, uh, into South Carolina. What the Confederates have uh, have, have sort of created is a, is a, s- a small industrial base down in that part of the country, and, and to get to that war-making capacity, you have to get through Chattanooga. So the next campaign begins at the end of August, uh, Rosecrans spends almost eight weeks building up supplies, repairing railroads, getting everything, once again, just getting everything ready for this this massive operation. And Rosecrans is a pretty good strategist. The Tullahoma campaign shows that. He, uh, um, he likes to use deception and maneuver. Um, he, he doesn't like frontal assaults, so he's going to try and trick Bragg out of uh, Chattanooga. Uh, he's going to send a diversionary force north and east of the city, and then he's going to cross the Tennessee River in Alabama to the southwest of the city and try and trap Bragg in Chattanooga by cutting off his Bragg's rail line back to Atlanta. The, uh, the campaign works brilliantly, really, for the first couple of weeks, uh, up until about September 14th. The interesting thing about Braxton Bragg, and he's much maligned, of course, in Civil War history, but Bragg is, uh, for all his problems, he's not a quitter, and he's very offensive-minded. 
uh, he just doesn't simply abandon the, the the idea of defending Tennessee or or Georgia or even ultimately of, of abandoning Chattanooga and just retreating south to Atlanta. He uh, he tries to uh, take advantage of Rosecrans' strategy, knowing that Rosecrans is going to spread his army out to try and outflank him and, and deceive him. Bragg decides to turn the tables. He's going to with some reinforcements that come in from other parts of the of the country, most famously, of course, being uh, James Longstreet and the First Corps Army of Northern Virginia that are sent at the beginning of September to reinforce him. Bragg's going to take, take these newly arriving troops, combine them with uh, troops he's already got in his army and his department, and counterattack. And uh, Chickamauga is an example of a Confederate offensive. Uh, the... Uh, Federals have already terminated their own offensive uh, by September 14th as Rosecrans realizes that he may be overextended and is sticking his head into a bit of a trap. And so in mid-September, Rosecrans, uh, who's al- he's already taken Chattanooga, I should point that out. Bragg has had to f- retreat out of Chattanooga to, uh, to work this trap and deceive Rosecrans. So Chattanooga is in Union hands, and Rosecrans is now scrambling to get back into that city and consolidate, get his army back together, and look for the next defensive operation. Uh, And before he does that, Bragg now is the the commander who's who's trying to bring the army, the the enemy, to battle. Uh, And that battle finally culminates uh, on the morning of, well, it really begins on September 18th as uh, cavalry skirmishes between uh, Bragg's army and, and federal cavalry. And then on the morning of the 19th, uh, as the two armies uh, come together for uh, a full-fledged conflict. Now, this counterattack by Bragg, is, is, is a, it starts with the skirmishing on the 18th, but he's been trying to attack Rosecrans all through the summer at different points. Uh, if there's one thing that shows through in, in your uh, narrative, it's that Bragg does not have a good control over his army. His officers do not respond well to his directions. Uh, so what, what kind of plan does he make for, the, for September 19th for his big counterattack, and, and how does it work out? Well, uh, as you noted, the, uh, by the, the summer of 1863, the Army of Tennessee is uh, is a mess, frankly. The uh, uh, the commander and most of his uh, immediate subordinates don't get along. The uh, orders are often questioned or ignored. Um, uh, Bragg is offensive-minded. Many of his uh, subordinates are, are less so. They question his judgment in, in most things. So Bragg's plans have actually miscarried three or four times by the time we get to this confrontation on September 19th. Bragg drafts a plan on September 18th to move three-fifths of his army, which is now roughly reinforced to 50,000 men and a, and a few more coming. Uh, so, But he wants to take 30,000 of those 50,000 men and move them north uh, along the west bank, or I'm sorry, the east bank of West Chickamauga Creek, which is a significant water feature in the area. And in doing so, he wants to move several miles north of a place called Lee and Gordon's Mills. Lee and Gordon's Mills represents the concentration of the Union Army uh, under Rosecrans 
they have been collecting there as their troops straggle in from the south. When Rosecrans began his movement, he uh, he advanced on a broad front. Uh, at one point, the the two wings, of the, the the right and left wings of his army were nearly forty miles apart. So it, it takes Rosecrans sometimes time to get these people back together. Bragg conceives of the idea of moving up uh, downstream on the West Chickamauga Creek, uh, cross the creek, and then uh, interpose these thirty thousand Confederates between. Rosecrans and the the city of Chattanooga, and then attack south and drive Rosecrans further away from Chattanooga and deeper into the North Georgia mountains. Um, on paper, it's a good plan. If they cut off Rosecrans from Chattanooga, his only other retreat is to head due west back to uh, the Tennessee River to uh, uh, the towns of Bridgeport and Stevenson, and that's a, a fair distance away. There's a good chance that the army will be uh, caught in moving while they do so, and uh, Rosecrans risks destruction if he tries to do that. However, uh, the the miscarriage or the, the typical miscarriage uh, of Bragg's plans uh, also trip him up on September 18th. Uh, some of his orders are misconstrued. His army moves slowly. And most importantly, there are federal cavalry and mounted infantry, uh, the brigades of uh, Robert Minty and John T. Wilder, who are opposing the major crossings uh, at uh, West Chickamauga Creek. And they give Rosecrans both time and the information uh, that he needs to devise a counter-strategy. And the battle really begins on September 19th because Rosecrans takes uh, the Union 14th Corps under George Thomas, his most trusted subordinate, uh, and orders them to march further north along the West Chickamauga Creek, this time on the West Bank, the sort of paralleling Bragg's maneuver, uh, but move even further north and then turn and uh, and be prepared to move against Bragg. Now, Rosecrans isn't, isn't envisioning an, an attack strategy, but there is a, a fair amount of evidence, actually, that Thomas, on September 19th, was envisioning uh, an offensive strategy. Uh, uh, typically, the battle is said to have begun when, uh, uh, despite the fact that this is Bragg's big offensive, the battle begins on September 19th when Thomas sends out a Union Infantry Division to go capture a quote-unquote lone Confederate brigade that he's gotten a report of. Well, Thomas actually knows a, a great deal more about the Confederate deployments, and he does mention the brigade. But by approximately 8.30 in the morning on September the 19th, Thomas is thinking of moving no less than three Union infantry divisions into an attack. Uh, the battle kind of then takes on a life of its own. Uh, Thomas's offensive doesn't quite come off as he envisions. Uh, his lead infantry runs into not just one Confederate infantry brigade, but several. Uh, and and the rest of the battle on the 19th can most easily be characterized by... Uh, each general, Rosecrans and Bragg, feeding in troops kind of piecemeal uh, to see what develops and see how things are going to shake out. So typically uh, at, uh, at 11 o'clock in response to Thomas's uh, attack, for instance, Bragg commits a division under St. John Liddell. Uh, then he commits another division under Frank Cheatham in the meantime. Uh, two more Union divisions have been committed at uh, at 12 and 1 o'clock. 
So you get this successive uh, coming together uh, of the battle line, and the battle starts uh, up at the northern end of of the field, and uh, the action will travel throughout the day uh, down a length of a line of, of three or four miles in length, uh, as both armies come together and fight what amount to a series of relatively inconclusive actions back and forth uh, in the woods. Well, that, that really comes out in the series of maps that, that show the fighting on September 19th, that you see uh, the Union force driving a Confederate force back. The blue lines are uh, pushing through the red lines. The arrows are, are showing this. But then a red, new red force shows up uh, on the southern flank of the Union Brigade, let's say, and, and completely outflanks it and drives it off. But then a new Union force shows up on the eastern or on the on the, the western or left flank of the Confederate Brigade, perpendicular to it, and then a new Confederate force shows up on the southern flank of the, the new Union force. And it... it, it it was sort of like tic-tac-toe, the, the, which inevitably ends in a tie. Uh, Not a bad know, analogy, I've, yes. You know, I've got you here. No, I've got you here. No, I've got you here. No, I've got you here. Back and forth, and map after map shows sudden decisive outflanking maneuver followed by the other side doing the same thing right back. Um, it, 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 it's hard to describe the, the effect of it. The, the, the fight must have been extraordinarily confusing. To, to everybody involved in it, um, I guess let me let me raise a specific point you, you mentioned in the introduction that on the Chickamauga battlefield today there are no statues of individual generals. Uh, uh, is that correct? That is correct. Um, so, uh, there is, that's uh, so different from Gettysburg. Yes, uh, there is a there are a couple of uh, uh, monuments that that kind of cheat. They have uh, some regimental busts and things. But by and large, and there's certainly no large equestrian statues to generals. Yes, you walk around Gettysburg and you have corps commanders on these, uh, you know, magnificent equestrian statues, and and you have uh, uh, divisional commanders, uh, you know, on on foot. Usually, there are uh, there are no statues like that at all on Chickamauga. Uh, the, uh, Is that a deliberate reflection of the fact that the officers, divisional and higher, didn't really? have that much to do with what was going on. It was just, just put well, your when units the, straight ahead. Uh, when the, in 1889, when uh, in response to the private development at, at Gettysburg and, and some other efforts at memorialization, um, the, uh, the veterans that came back to Chickamauga uh, deliberately embraced that idea as uh, an idea that this was a soldier's battle. This was um, uh, a pure fight uh, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a battle of great sweeping movements uh, of, of carefully planned flank attacks, and, and uh, you know there wasn't a Chancellorsville. Or there weren't. It was instead uh, this confused series of firefights and slugfests in the woods. Um, I'll give you two quick examples. Um, Walthall's brigade of Mississippians charge across the same field twice: once in the morning on the 19th, and once in the afternoon. But in the morning, they're moving south to north, and when they do it again in the afternoon, they're moving east to west. So they're, they're essentially crisscrossing their own attack path. And then uh, there's a, a, a Gross's Brigade, uh, a Union Brigade that's fighting uh, just in the woods between Brotherton and Brock Fields. Uh, 
Uh, and in the course of their afternoon's action on September 19th, they will actually fight. Uh, their brigade front will be oriented in three of the four cardinal directions. Uh, it's a very confused situation. The soldiers recognize that, and they want to honor that when they come back. That's uh, uh, so. There's a deliberate decision not to put um, uh, not to put these monuments up to the divisional and corps commanders. Well, not that they don't respect those officers. Obviously, uh, they they hold a great deal of esteem for for many of their officers. But it's it's a deliberate uh, approach to the battlefield. Well, and it does reflect the way the battle was fought. We're going to take another short break. We'll come right back with Dave Powell, author of The Maps of Chickamauga, in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Chickamauga has been described as a barren victory. We'll find out who won and why it didn't help when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Ready to revolutionize your thinking? It's time to learn about the clarity, simplicity, and speed of systems thinking and how it can be applied to every aspect of your daily life. Each week, tune in to Steve Haynes Live and learn one systems thinking concept. You'll also learn three simple, clear, and integrated applications that you can use instantly. You can apply them to your life, job, family, organization, government, and or society. Steve Haynes Live broadcasts every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Join Steve, and together we will make a global difference. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Dave Powell author of The Maps of Chickamauga. It's a battlefield atlas of one of the most uh, confused and intricate Civil War battles that fought in uh, at Chickamauga in September 1863. Uh, we were talking in our last segment about the first day's action, the swirling attack and counterattack uh, nature of the fighting. But what Chickamauga is remembered for is particularly what happened on the second day, and I want to get to that in a moment. Uh, but Dave, first I want to ask you a question about tactics in the battle. One of the things I really liked about this book was the uh, discussion that periodically came up about the tactics used, the small unit maneuvers. Uh, and some of these maps have a, a very small scale where one inch is just a few hundred yards so you can really get a sense of what's going on at, at the, the micro level. Um, you make uh, the point, for example, that by 1863, most uh, Union brigade commanders would advance their men in two lines of regiments. Each regiment would have a double 
rank of soldiers in it, but two regiments in in one line up front, and then uh, a few hundred yards back, the second line of two regiments. Whereas a Confederate brigade would more likely advance with all four regiments abreast in a single row. How did they come to that, and what effect did it have? Well, uh, the uh, the Confederates are relying on on pre-war manuals, uh, Hardee's manual, most famously, but also some South Carolina uh, militia manuals, Gillum's. I mean, there's the the basic concept uh, of of how to fight a, a, a brigade really comes from the army's pre-war thinking, and that's line the regiments up in a single line in advance. Um, in 1863. Uh, or really in 62, but adopted in 1863, the Union Army, having had a couple of years of combat experience, uh, wrote a new manual. Uh, They designated a guy named Silas Casey, who was a a Civil War general and divisional commander on the peninsula, to uh, come up with uh, a new system of combat. And Casey's manual uh, adopted a more compact formation. He liked the idea of having two reg- regiments in the front line and two regiments in a support line uh, because he felt it was more flexible. Uh, the interesting thing about it uh, is that um, Rosecrans, the technical, uh, uh, you know, the technician, what we would call a, the policy wonk today, uh, uh, loved uh, the idea of Casey's. And uh, he was an innovator. Rosecrans was a, a pre-war man of science and an inventor and things like that. So uh, he was very meticulous about finding new procedures, and, and he, his army, the Army of the Cumberland, adopted Casey's manual uh, sooner, really, than, than the rest of the army. As a matter of fact, you'll find uh, uh, a single line of regiments in both uh, the Army of the Potomac and, and the Army of the Tennessee a lot more commonly uh, in 64, even, than you will see uh, the Army of the Cumberland fight. The difference is, uh, obviously, the Confederate battle line is longer. Um, so if a Confederate brigade meets a, a Union brigade, uh, it can overlap its flanks. But the Union brigade has a support line, and it can move those two regiments uh, to different situations. It can move to block those flank attacks, for instance, if uh, uh, as they develop the situation. So the Union... Uh, front or, or the Union Brigade sacrifices flexibility or sacrifices uh, uh, firepower basically for flexibility. The Confederate uh, are, are still relying uh, basically on firepower. Where there are sufficient Union Brigades to match Confederate Brigades, it's not a problem. But uh, where the Confederate line uh, outnumbers or even matches the Union line um, with the Union in this formation. They're, they're going to be more exposed Union flanks, and so more Union brigades end up getting outflanked. Uh, it's, a, it's a common problem, and it's a flaw that, uh, that I think uh, maybe General Casey hadn't fully appreciated, or he didn't expect uh, combat in this kind of environment where uh, you're often fighting in the woods and your visibility is limited to maybe only 150 yards. So by the time the enemy is upon you, it's very difficult to react quickly. Another tactical innovation in the Army that you talk about is uh, August Villick, the uh, uh, brigade commander, uh, taught his troops how to advance while firing. But, of course, loading a, a rifled musket takes you know, a good 30 seconds uh, while stationary. 
what was Villick's tactic that, that changed that? Well, instead of uh, lining up in two ranks, he wanted to line the regiments up in four ranks, and each rank would fire and load, and then while it was loading, the next rank would advance forward through it, uh, stop about five or ten yards in advance, they would fire, and then they'd start to load, and then the third rank would do so, and then the fourth rank, and by the time the fourth rank was ready, the first rank was fully loaded and ready to move forward again. So you get this kind of uh, continuous wall of motion. It's not fast, but uh, it's it's steady, and it's also a continuous wall of firepower because every roughly 10 or 15 seconds, uh, a quarter of the regiment is firing. So, if, you know, every 10 or 15 seconds, if you have a 400-man regiment, you're going to have 100 rounds uh, uh, being poured on the enemy. It proved remarkably effective in the couple of places where it was used. However, it's not an official, it's not in any official manual. The uh, uh, Once again, Rosecrans apparently embraced it, and I've only found two Union brigades that used the, this formation during the battle. Uh, one was August Villicks, and there's a regiment, uh, a couple of regiments in another brigade uh, under Charles Harker that use it. But uh, uh, so there's only two brigades in the Union Army that seem to be using this this new innovative tactic. Uh, Rosecrans apparently permits it, and perhaps he was considering it to be a trial basis. But with a little bit of foreshadowing here, we know that Rosecrans isn't going to stay with the army. Uh, uh, in uh, shortly after this battle, he's going to actually be replaced, and General Grant is going to come in. He's going to put Thomas in charge of the uh, Army of the Cumberland. And at that point, Villick is told not to use his formation again, to stick with the manual, basically. So Thomas has many great qualities, but he's not a, a tactical innovator, and he didn't like it. In terms of uh, foreshadowing, Rosecrans not staying with the Army, I guess let's leap ahead to the the crux of, of the battle. On the second day, uh, the Confederates attack again. They try to overlap the left flank of the Union Army, where Thomas has his corps, uh, and, and they they do quite well. Your maps show how they uh, they penetrate the, around the Union line, but are driven back. And then they attack uh, under Longstreet in the, the southern half of the field, and there, uh, for almost the only time in a major Civil War battle, where you see a force attacking directly at and opposing force that's ready and waiting, uh, uh, that's a recipe for disaster. But this time, instead of being ready and waiting, the Longstreet's men go forward, and there's nobody there. Uh, there's a big hole in the Union line. That That's the moment of the battle no one quite understands to this day. What happened? Well, um, we really have to go back to General Rosecrans, um, who uh, uh, basically was... Uh, doing two things wrong. One, he was paying, er, letting Thomas fight the battle for him to a certain extent. Whatever Thomas needed, Thomas got, uh, and Rosecrans wasn't paying sufficient attention to the rest of his front. If Thomas needed troops, Rosecrans would immediately scramble around to find Thomas some troops to send, even if those troops happened to be in the front line. The other thing is, is that Thomas was not really working through his chain of command very well. He wasn't relying on his other two corps commanders, uh, he was primarily uh, working at the divisional level. Now, there are 10 field divisions uh, in the Army of uh, uh, 
of the Cumberlands this time, 10 infantry divisions. Uh, there's a there's a reason why the modern army uh, strongly, uh, you know, everything about the modern army is devised to give commanders usually only three or four immediate subordinates to manage, because more than that, and things tend to get out of hand, and that's exactly what happened here. Um, quickly, to boil it down, George Thomas sent a messenger to a guy named, uh, a divisional commander named, named uh, Reynolds, and asked John uh, uh, James Reynolds, sorry, uh, or no Joseph Reynolds, sorry, asked Reynolds to bring his division up to Kelly Field. Now Reynolds was holding a battle line in a place called Poe Field, about three quarters of a mile south of where uh, Thomas was. Reynolds said yes, he would go, um, or, or he would send uh, actually Brannon's division, John M. Brannon's division, and then at the last minute. Uh, Brandon and Reynolds decided that they couldn't send a division. However, the messenger from uh, Thomas was told to go on to General Rosecrans and inform him that Brandon's division was going to move and uh, they needed troops to fill this hole immediately. And then uh, Reynolds and uh, Brandon decided that they couldn't move. No one told or sent another aide to recall the, that message, uh, Rosecrans gets this message that there's a hole been opened in his front line. So he orders the next division in line uh, under Thomas J. Wood to simply move north uh, and close this hole that he thinks is formed. Well, the hole isn't there because Brannon didn't move. Uh, Wood interprets the order that he had better pull out of line, march north behind Brannon, and find General Reynolds. Um, so just to get this straight, Wood has been told, go fill that gap on your left and connect up with General Reynolds, but there is no gap because Reynolds has decided not to, to do this. So Wood doesn't know what to do. He's been told to go connect to Reynolds, but there's no gap next to Reynolds. Right. So he goes off anyway to say, well, I guess I'll get behind Reynolds or next to him well, or do something. The order has a sense of urgency about it. Of course, this becomes a famous debate after the war between Rosecrans and, and his supporters and Wood and his. But at the time of the battle, uh, first of all, uh, something almost exactly like this had happened on the afternoon of September 19th, and Wood had been rushed in first into one sector of the battle and then rushed into another area. Uh, now he's in a he's holding a line that he. He's already replaced a division. Now he's got an order to go replace another division. Um, and the the other sort of interesting factor is that uh, his uh, there is a Union Corps commander present, uh, uh, Alexander McDowell McCook, who uh, commands the Union 20th Corps. And Wood shows him the order and says, what should I do? And McCook tells him, well, they're in a lot of trouble up there. It says, you better go right away. Uh, don't wait for replacement, I'll send some troops over. Well, McCook doesn't actually have enough troops to send over to fill this, the gap that is going to be created. But Wood leaves because not only does he have this urgent order in hand from Rosecrans, but he also has the endorsement of a Union Corps commander. You might, as you might uh, imagine, General McCook uh, goes to great efforts to downplay his role in this after the battle because it as it turns out, it's the seminal moment of the battle. Or, or well, the it is battle. because it leaves the hole in the line which Longstreet's uh, force pours through. Um, I'm going to say that most of our listeners know 
Thomas's nickname is the Rock of Chickamauga, that he holds his position while Rosecrans and the rest of the army leave. Unfortunately, Dave, we are out of time. This happens much too soon uh, this week, like every week. Um, so we'll have to leave them there. But this leaves our listeners with the urgent need to get a copy of The Maps of Chickamauga by David A. Powell and David A. Friedrichs and follow the story yourselves on this beautifully produced and really fascinating uh, and illuminating is the word I want, the illuminating book about the Battle of Chickamauga. And I'd like to say uh, that my publisher, I thought, did a fabulous job because uh, the maps are all in full color. And, yes. uh, and for the price of the book, uh, I, was, I never imagined that we could do color maps, but I'm thrilled that we've been able to do it. It is, it is a, a beautiful map. Uh, Savas Beatty is the publisher. Uh, Powell is the author. The Maps of Chickamauga is the title. Dave, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.